are the following announcements. First of all, with thankfulness to the Lord, the consistory announces that our brother Jonathan Sikama has indicated his desire to profess his faith before God and the congregation. The profession of faith is planned for the Lord willing this coming Sunday, December the 3rd, 2017, in the AM service. Secondly, an attestation has been requested by brother and sister Curtis and Megan Hutton and one baptized child to the Canadian Reformed Church at Owen Sound. Please rise to begin our worship. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now sing together Psalm 99, the stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 6.
After we together submit ourselves to the ten words of God's covenant, let us sing together from Psalm 97, the stanzas 2 and 3. And God speaks all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing a steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Our Lord Jesus teaches us this in a summary, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13 that the commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law.
Let us call upon the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly God and Father, Almighty God, the one who sits enthroned in the heavens above the cherubim, the one who is holy, indeed most holy, the one who, when he speaks, the voice is like thunderbolts and lightning that makes the earth tremble, you, the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, the one who upholds it day by day, as it were, by your hand, we draw near to you in prayer this morning, and we thank you that we may draw near to you, knowing that you, the Almighty Holy God, are our Father, and we may have a relationship with you in which we can come near to you without fear, without fear of being consumed or condemned because you have shown yourself to be a gracious God, a gracious Father in the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that because of him, it is possible that we approach you just like children can approach their fathers, the fathers whom they know that love them and care for them. And so we know you are towards us as a Father who cares for us, who loves us. Even though you are the most holy God, we can come near to you with joy in our hearts. And we do so also again this morning. We rejoice in the fact that we may assemble for worship, we may be together as your congregation. And already at the very beginning of the worship service, we heard your greetings of grace and peace. And so we were again reminded of your love for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we confess it is a great privilege that we may have this relationship that you so quickly put us at ease as we are together in worship of your name. Indeed, it is a gift, a gift of grace, a sovereign grace that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, at the same time as we rejoice in knowing these things, we also know the need to continually humble ourselves. Father, we have to confess that in this past week there will have been many things that did not indicate that we were your children. There were things that betrayed that love and that grace and that gift of the Holy Spirit that you have given to us. As we look back also over the past week, then we will notice there were many actions that were not pleasing to you. Perhaps we should have indeed also spoken up for the honor of your name, and we did not. We remained silent. And there will have been many words that were not proper towards one another. Perhaps even within the marriage relationship, harsh words were spoken between husband and wife, between also in a family, between parents and children. And Father, we know that you have heard them all. And even if the words were not spoken, there will have been thoughts, thoughts about those close to us, thoughts about brothers and sisters in the Lord, thoughts about others that were not proper, that were not holy, that were not pure, that may have betrayed anger, that may have betrayed jealousy and envy and desire for revenge, but we might not have spoken them, and yet you know that they will have lingered in our hearts. And so we confess also again this morning our many sins, the sins that we can indeed recollect as we think for a little bit about our past week, but we have to confess also there were many sins that we did inadvertently because we have to acknowledge that we are not always so sensitive to your holiness, not always so sensitive to the holy demands of your law. We are kind of numb to the requirements of obedience. And so we confess our many sins and shortcomings rather than openly and only knowingly as we reflect, but also the many done inadvertently. 
and we seek your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Because we know that even though we should not sin, we have an advocate before you, our Lord and Savior. And we know that when we go through him, you will wash all those sordid sins away. And so we again hold on to that promise that we may find forgiveness, we may find restoration and renewal and reconciliation in the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior. And we do that also again this morning. And in that confidence also we dare to ask that you will open our hearts as we read Scripture together. And then also we will uh, submit ourselves to the preaching of the gospel. Indeed, work in our hearts, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, that as we listen, we will indeed be refreshed in our understanding of you and your holiness and your grace and goodness. And also, we will be stirred up all the more to live a life of faithfulness before you, a life that shows indeed that we are your grateful children. And so we ask for the necessary gifts, whether that be in the bringing of your word or in listening to it. And we ask that you will be pleased to accept our worship as we bring it by being here, by sitting together as brothers and sisters, listening to your word, taking it all in, by also singing our songs of praise, our prayers, our offerings, Father, indeed, be pleased to accept it all as we bring it to you through our Savior, that he might wash away its defects. Hear our prayer for his sake alone. Amen. Let us now open God's holy word together, and we will read from the book of Exodus, chapter 19. That chapter will also be the text for the sermon. And after the reading of God's word, let us sing together hymn 12, the stanzas 1, 3, and 4. And we read the word of God there as follows. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I I bore you on eagles' wings, And brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sound when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and bring and come up, bringing Aaron with you. <clears throat> but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them.
As was mentioned, the text for the sermon is the passage we read together in Exodus chapter 19. After the sermon, let us sing together Psalm 24, the stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text for this morning can be seen as the high point in the book of Exodus, perhaps even the high point in the Old Testament times. After all, it's all preparation for and then also the beginning of God coming down to his people on Mount Sinai. This was not just a vision or a dream of some individual. This was not just the appearance to one person. Of course, the Lord had done that before, appearing to Abraham or even to Moses at the burning bush. No, here the people together were going to meet the God who had just brought about that great act of deliverance, setting them free from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Of course, this is what the Lord had also indicated to Moses when he revealed himself at the burning bush. He had said, well, you're going to take the people to this place. And as we meet together, the Lord and Moses, you will also see that I will meet with my people. So Moses had been called to lead the people to this particular point. Now, if you put the pieces together, also at the beginning of the chapter, when it speaks about the beginning of the third month, that indicates that Israel had been traveling about six to eight weeks because they had left about the middle of the first month of the new year, as indicated by the Lord, taking about six to eight weeks to get to Mount Sinai. Now we also learn how when they got there, Moses wasted no time in approaching the Lord and to prepare for this meeting because you get the impression that when they got there, Well, Moses left the people to set up camp. You know, it always takes a while when you have to set up camp, even for families going camping. Then, as they were busy with that, Moses right away went up the mountain. But as the account unfolds for us, then you quickly get the impression that while Moses was eager to have it all happen, it's like the Lord said, well, Moses, not so fast. Yes, the moment of meeting his people is near. But there are a couple of important things that need to be cleared up before that meeting can take place. After all, the people are about to meet the holy God, the almighty creator of heaven and earth. It's not just some ordinary kind of meeting. No, meeting the creator of heaven and earth, who sits enthroned in the heavens, always surrounded by the holy angels. You just don't walk up to a God like that. And so, it's true, of course, the Lord had shown himself already to the people of Israel in his deeds. He had shown himself to be faithful to his covenant promises that he had made way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the way he set them free. But before this moment, you could say, of covenant communion between God and the people was to take place, there was also to be an indication of commitment on Israel's part as well as the need for consecration of the people. Because if these things are not properly addressed, well, 
then the people are not going to have a moment of sweet communion, you could say, with their God, but they will have a moment of being consumed by the Holy God. Now we need to, need to pay careful attention to all this, for it is not just a moment in Israel's history. No. We, we learn something very important about our meeting, also our meeting with God, not only on the last day, when our Savior is going to come in glory, but you could say there are also implications here already for our weekly meeting with God when we come together in worship. And we learn that while the covenant may be unilateral, that is, unconditional in its institution, it is bilateral, two-sided, in its execution. And that also means that for us to enjoy covenant communion with God, there is a need on our part for commitment and consecration, like there was for Israel. Now, to work this all out, I proclaim to you this morning, the events at Mount Sinai impress on us how covenant communion with God requires our commitment and consecration. Now, you'll have noted that we use the term covenant communion. And that word covenant is very important. And the whole way the book of Exodus unfolds, really, it's all the unfolding, you could say, of God's covenant promises made to Abraham. But a covenant, we have to understand, a covenant, we don't use that term too often anymore, but the word covenant really indicates a relationship where two parties bind themselves together. Most common comparison we can think of nowadays is the marriage covenant, where a husband and wife bind themselves together. They make commitments to each other, but also they can have certain expectations of each other. Now, all God's actions in freeing Israel were because he was faithful to his part in the covenant he made with Abraham. It's interesting how also our text is, puts it this way. When the Lord speaks to, Abraham, to, to, to Moses, he said, well, he is to remind also Israel how he bore them on eagles' wings. Notice that expression, on eagles' wings. You will have noticed that also in hymn 12, which we sang, which is based on the song of Moses, which he composed near the end of his life, as we find it in Deuteronomy 32. That really describes how the Lord had looked after his people. Because we read also, if you look at the actual passage in Deuteronomy 32, it says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided his people. You see that, that image there? The children have learned about that in school as well, that at a certain point an eagle, when the little eaglets have grown big enough, they will actually knock them out of the nest. It seems very cruel, or it might even lift them up higher, but taking it by its talons and drops them. Of course, the little bird can't fly yet, but then the bird falls and the mother swoops down underneath and catches it before any damage is done. And it keeps on doing this until the little eagle learns how to fly. So... This whole idea of being born on eagle's wings that, that really shows care, love, protection, but also impressed upon the people that there was complete dependence upon the Lord. So that really comes out here. The Lord reminds his people that the whole Exodus experience had been an indication of him caring for them like an eagle. 
always looking after the best of his, of its, of his people, always there to protect them and to guide them. But then, as the Lord has reminded also the people through these words, which Moses is to take back to the people, then something remarkable happens. Because as we think of the whole Exodus experience, the fruit of his promise to Abraham, you can say, well, all that was unconditional. And But at this point, at this point, the Lord puts down a condition. He says, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So there's something that the people have to do. If you will obey my voice, keep my covenant. You see, here the Lord is asking his people for a commitment. It's interesting at this point that it is not even spelled out what exactly he will ask them to do. Well, the Lord will soon spell that out when he gives the ten words of the covenant, the ten commandments. But now, at this point, before the Lord even will do that, he has to ask his people for a wholehearted commitment, even though they do not yet know what they are committing to. That seems a bit risky. It's like saying to someone, oh, just trust me, can you, can you just sign your name on this check and just trust me I won't put a wrong kind of amount in over there. You know, who's going to do that? Give a blank check to someone. Yet Israel, in effect, was asked to do that. Are you ready to commit yourself to following the Lord even though you don't know exactly yet what he's all going to ask from you? But of course it comes against a certain background. It comes in a certain context. The God who asked this of his people just has reminded them, look what I have done for you. Look how I have borne you on eagle's wings. I have protected you. I have provided for you. Even through all those journeys in the wilderness, he gave bread from heaven. He gave water when they were thirsty. So the whole escape from Egypt, going through the Red Sea, all those things together, the Lord says, this is what I've done. Now I want you to trust me that it is okay from this point on. What you see here really is really the call of faith. Because when also the Lord calls us to faith, we do not know all what lies ahead. What we are committing to, you could say, but we look back to what the Lord has done for us. We as New Testament believers look especially to the Christ crucified. And based on what he has done, we say, yes, I trust the Lord. He's done all that for me. He has borne us on eagle's wings, setting us free from bondage to Satan and to sin. And now I know it is okay. I can trust him. I don't even know what all the implications are. It doesn't really matter. We say yes to God, based on what he has already done for us, showing his goodness, his love, his compassion. But do you see the marvel of this covenant, this relationship, brothers and sisters, where the Lord reminded his people of how far he had brought them already. But then he says, in effect, before we go any further, I want to hear from you whether you trust me, whether you are ready to commit yourself to keeping my covenant. It really comes across at this point as the Lord giving Israel a choice. But as we think about that, talk of condition, talk of choice, that, that, that's kind of bound to throw us off as we have grown up and we've studied the catechism, the canons of Dort, all those kind of things. Does this give the impression now that actually we have a free will? 
Are we not dead in our sins and trespasses? Is it not the case that, that the Lord Jesus even said that we need to be born again? How does this kind of reconcile with the fact that salvation is all out of grace? Now, they all very well be the case, but we can think of all these theological concepts, but then we also have to think, but what does it say in our text? And how do we get out from under the weight of the words of our text? See, and then we start to think about other parts of Scripture in terms of conditions, in terms of being given a choice. You hear it more. You think, for example, of the way that Joshua also spoke to the people as they had entered the Promised Land. You know, near the end of his life, he called all the people together again. And then he also reminded the people, and he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. And you know the well-known words that he answered himself, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the same way in the New Testament time. There, so often you hear also the, the call to repent, to believe the gospel. The Lord come to the demand. Do you believe my promises? Do you promise to walk in faithfulness? And so it's true when we look at all the doctrine of Scripture together, the whole council, yes, we have to speak about God's sovereign election. All things, you could say, are decreed from before the foundation of the world. But the Scripture at the same time, without having any sense of contradiction within itself, also time and again says, but now, people, how do you respond to the gospel? How do you respond to my promises? To my work of salvation. And he wants a sincere answer. That's the way of the covenant. The Lord comes with his promises. But then also he says to the people now. I call you to respond to my promises. In faith and obedience. And the importance of the affirmative answer of his people. Comes out in the way the Lord said. That if they obey his voice. They would be his treasured possession, and a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so what this comes down to <clears throat> is that, he, that only by wholeheartedly responding to God's love would also the people then fulfill the purpose God had in mind for them of being instruments to accomplish his purpose for them. And the mention of being his treasured possession while all the earth belongs to him. It's kind of a reminder of how the Lord, when he set Abraham apart, he didn't say, well, I'm never going to pay attention to the rest of the world again. You know that Abraham was set apart that he might be a blessing to the nations of the world because the Lord says the whole earth is mine. But to bring the salvation to all the peoples of the earth, he was going to isolate Abraham, isolate Israel, that from Israel might come the savior, not just of Israel, but of the world. It also reminds us then of the special calling the Lord had in mind for his people Israel, but it's also reinforced by the way he calls them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's not just like your typical kingdom where people are only busy looking after themselves, trying to make a good life for themselves and all focused on the things of this earth. No. Priestly nation, a holy nation, is a nation set apart to serve God, 
to have. It's life focused on him to glorify him, but also you could say to be a blessing to those round about them. Because as a priestly nation, they would really stand out from the nations round about. There was always about power and might and getting ahead in the world. Israel was not to be that way. They were not to be like the run-of-the-mill nations that the world is full of. It also is reflected later on when the people of Israel want a king, just like the nations round about. And then when Samuel is upset at first, the Lord says, well, you don't be upset, Samuel. It's, about, it's against me. They basically have rejected me from being a king. And so they want to be like the nations. They want a king like the nations. Well, they got a king like the nations. They got Saul. How he ever regretted that. But the Lord in his grace eventually gave him a king after his own heart. But, but at that particular point when the people wanted to be like the nations. The Lord says that hurts me. Because they are to be different. Kingdom of priests. A holy nation. Now we read that when the Lord had passed this on to Moses. This called for the people to commit themselves. Well Moses he went back down. And he spoke to the elders. As you look through the chapter, Moses goes back and forth three times. So this is just the first time already. He goes down and he brings these words to the elders. And we're told that the people responded, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So with this answer, Moses goes back up the mountain. Really shows Moses also in his role as mediator. You can be sure the Lord had heard what was going on up in the heavens, but Moses functions up as functions as mediator between God and his people. But the response was essential to move forward for the moment of communion between God and his people to take place. It's also true for us, brothers and sisters, because God has done great things for us in his son Jesus Christ. The whole Exodus, of course, anticipates. What God has done in Jesus Christ, setting us free from bondage to Satan and sin. And the whole salvation experience can be seen as being born on eagles' wings. But then the question also comes to us. Will you obey my voice? Will you keep my covenant? You can put it in terms of, do you believe? Are you ready to commit yourself to following your Savior? And if we are to look forward to meeting the God who has brought us to himself, if we are going to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests that glorifies him, that is a blessing to those round about him, well, then we need to answer. We need to indicate our commitment. Such commitment is essential to our meeting with God. If it is going to be a time to commune with God... Because if there is no commitment, it will be a time that he will consume us. Because the God we meet is not just your ordinary God or just a super big human being. It is the holy God. The God who has shown his love and his power in Jesus Christ. But the God who cannot tolerate sin. That's why he gave his son. So we need also to respond to his promises. Respond in faith and obedience. But we're not done, however with an indication of commitment. We learn how Moses, on his second trip back up the mountain, after he passed on the people's answer, sent back down by the Lord, to also instruct the people to consecrate themselves. 
And to that we turn next, consecration. Now when you read this part of the chapter, beginning at verse 9, goes to verse 15, you could say that when they're told to wash their clothes, it was like the Lord said, well, tomorrow is the day you have the whole people of Israel is going to have a big laundry day. Well, understandable to some degree. You know, it being about six weeks, they had been traveling, they had left in a rather hurry when they left Egypt. So, yeah, good idea to clean your clothes after wandering through the wilderness for so many weeks without probably having time to do much of those kind of things. But then you think, well, that's kind of superficial, isn't it? Dealing with your clothing, that's kind of dealing with externals. The Lord is not too concerned about externals, is he? But as we think this through, we will realize that the washing of clothes, yes, that is an external matter. But it was a way of preparing the people for that great meeting with God. And also by focusing here on the externals, it was a way of impressing upon them the holy character of that encounter. We've pictured it before. The Lord our God is the holy God, the almighty creator. Really, the universe is not big enough to contain him. He's bigger than the universe. They were about to meet him, the one who had shown that awesome power in the way he had sent all those plagues upon the Egyptians. The greatest plague was the death of the firstborn, the way he had split the Red Sea, and then Israel went through on dry ground, and then the waters covered all the Egyptians. And it's understandable, when you go to meet someone awesome and mighty, really beyond our comprehension, then you need to prepare yourself in the best possible way. That's a way of showing respect. It's really something understood throughout most of human history. When you went to someone of great significance, then you did your best to present yourself in your best outfit, you could say. Now, we could say that's only externals. That's true, but it's still a way of showing respect and something that has been lost in our age, where it seems to be that casualness is really the way to go about things. Even when people get to meet dignitaries, even the queen or other important figures, oh, they don't even care all that much how they present themselves, but it seems to be even more with respect to God. God is being brought down to such a level saying he takes us whatever way we are, which is true, but he doesn't leave us there. He changes us. He changes us. But we don't stay the way we are. He regenerates us. He makes us new. That respect is often interesting how when you see pictures of missionaries doing work on the mission field, it can be kind of perplexing when you think, well, they go to a hot country. It must be the time that the minister can just go without any tie, without any jacket. And the people, no, sure, oh, sure, they're going to sit there very casually dressed, but the remarkable thing is that so often these people, and the ministers too, they are formally dressed even in a hot climate. Not even just a short sleeve shirt, a long sleeve shirt of all things, a tie and a jacket. Now why? Well, a sense of the significance of appearing before the Holy God. You see, those kind of things, that things that were taken for granted throughout much of history, 
when we think it through, when we think, well, we're going to meet the Lord our God. Yes, it's only externals, but by the externals, you show something about what you think about God, how to approach him, and the privilege of approaching him. But that's only the beginning of it. You know, the need to respect God's holiness comes out also in the call to restrict access to Mount Sinai. Neither people nor animals were to touch the mountain. They had to put up barricades. Kind of reminds us of the way the Lord spoke to Moses. When he saw the burning bush, he came near. The Lord said, stop, stop. Take off the shoes on your feet, the sandals, because the ground you are standing on is holy by virtue of God's presence. Now here, God hadn't yet come down on Mount Sinai, but the site was being prepared in anticipation of his coming. Now, at the end of verse 15, we read of one additional requirement. I almost wonder, did God tell this to Moses? Did Moses toss it in? But notice how the couples were told not to engage in sexual relations while preparing to meet God. Kind of reminds us of what the Apostle Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 7 when he discusses various marriage issues. And you know that where in Corinth, people, some people were thinking, well, now that we are Christians, we, we can stop being married. If we are married, Paul says, no, you, you stay married. Or some might have thought, well, we don't have to engage in sexual relations because we want to be focused on God. So Paul says, no, that is still part of life, and don't, don't abstain for no reason whatsoever. But he says, maybe a couple wants to decide that for a few days they will abstain so they can concentrate on their relationship with God. They can have perhaps extra time for prayer. But, but don't do it too long, he says. That's not good. Because by putting marriage also in the background and the marriage relationships, there was a time to focus more fully on the relationship with the Lord. So that kind of thinking can be there on occasion. But here, also because there is the great encounter waiting for the people of Israel, you're going to meet the Holy God, clear your lives, clear your mind, be focused on what you are about to experience. Notice that. Everything is being done to focus attention fully on what is about to take place. The Lord wanted Israel to be ready for the moment he came, ready for the time of covenant communion which overshadows every other relationship we have in this life. But now as we look at this instruction, very practical you could say, dealing to a degree with externals, if we look at it within the broader context of scripture, we realize that really what is being anticipated here is a greater consecration, which is internal. Points to the call for living a consecrated life that is a life of holiness. Israel would soon learn about this because, you know, we get the Ten Commandments, but then the Lord expands on that. He gives all kinds of instructions also when it comes to daily living, think also of the book of Leviticus. Sometimes that book is called the Holiness Code because not only does it speak about sacrifices, but all kind of instructions are given for how to live a life of holiness that shows they are different from the nations round about. So that's an internal thing, a moral thing. It's also expressed 
in Psalm 24. We sing a couple of stanzas after the sermon where we read, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So clean hands, that refers to our deeds, the things that we do. The pure heart refers to the intentions and the desires. So it goes on. Who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear swear deceitfully. You see, the consecrated life is not just the external things, then you end up in legalism. But it is the internal life where you seek to serve the Lord. That really is something that echoes throughout the New Testament times as well, where you hear repeated calls, you could say, to consecrated living. If you, if you think of the almost predictable pattern in the letters of the Apostle Paul, you can almost say that the first few chapters he is going to be reviewing certain things of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, reminding us of certain aspects of salvation. And then, once he has clarified it again, of indeed how we are saved through the work of Jesus Christ, then, inevitably... He moves, on to, he moves on to indicating how we now should live. Really, you can say, calls to holiness. As Christians, you don't do this anymore. You put off the old nature. Think of Colossians 3. You put on the new nature. Then, also think of Ephesians chapter 4. He will say, you did not so learn Christ. And then he points out sinful ways. And he says, these are the proper ways. So the same pattern where the life of consecration is pointed out. And he goes to the internal things. How should indeed God's children be living? And also a very clear warning. If his readers do not take the call to consecrate themselves to heart, you think of 1 Corinthians 6, for example, Galatians 5, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not commune with God. Simple as that. We read in Hebrews 12, verse 14. That without holiness, no one will see God. So without a consecrated life, we will not see God. Now it's only after commitment to keep the covenant and obeying the call to consecrate themselves that the time was ready for Israel to meet the Lord. And as you think of that last part of the chapter, the last third, then you try to visualize that. What a meeting, what an encounter that was. We hear a thunder and lightning, thick cloud of darkness coming down upon the mountain, a loud trumpet blast getting louder and louder and louder. Well, you can see that in a situation like that, if some people had decided to sleep in, uh, that wouldn't last very long. You'd be kind of shocked out of your sleeping bag as you heard all that kind of noise. Moses summoned the people, time to come meet the Lord. Even that trumpet call later in Israel, if they would call out the soldiers to fight against the enemy, they would sound the trumpet. But also here, an indication of the coming of God, time to get ready. Makes us think also of the last day, because we think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, or 1 Corinthians 5, we hear about the trumpet call, indicating God is about to approach Thessalonians, of course, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior who is about to approach to judge the living and the dead. But keep in mind that these 
mentions of thunder, lightning, and the cloud, they are all indications in scriptures of God's presence. The cloud of presence had been there already. It served as a shadow during the day when the sun would be beaming down on the people. At night it was a giant night light, so the people wouldn't have to be afraid in this scary wilderness. The Lord was near to them. But also this whole image of thunder, lightning, cloud, all indicating also the voice of God. Thunder is a voice of God. Think also here of the vision of Ezekiel. You want to get another impression of of how God's presence is indicated. Read Ezekiel 1. What a majestic vision of, of God coming near and Ezekiel seeing many things and he's just stuttering and stammering to explain it all. But, but he has the sense of the presence of God and he's overwhelmed by it all. Notice also the trembling. Mount Sinai trembles. The people tremble. Who wouldn't be shaking in their boots? Just imagine if right now a big thunderstorm would break out and the thunder would keep on going second after second over top of this building and the whole building would shake well every child would be terrified with fear not only the children even the adults what's going on over here indeed when the lord comes down then the earth shakes that respect even time and again also in the book of psalms you notice some of the songs that we've been singing that speak about god's presence his might and indicated by the thunder and the lightning any psalms speak about that Now we are told how Moses, again showing his role as mediator, having brought the people out of the camp, is called up by God. So this is his third trip up the mountain, then sent back down again. Reminder to the people, do not touch the mountain. Seems kind of strange, you know. The Lord had kind of impressed that upon Moses already, and then we would think, had God forgotten? And Moses has to kind of remind the people. But we can also see it here as the Lord underlining the point. He has come to meet his people. Yes, it's happening, it's happening, but it should never be forgotten that though he is coming so close to his people, he is the holy, eternal God. And that means that no matter how intimate we may be in our relationship with him, there always has to be a proper respect and a distance between him and us. Later on, this would become also evident when he had the instructions given for the tabernacle. You know, when we think of the tabernacle and all the curtains that had to be made, all the different courts, and then also finally you have the Holy of Holies. It is like the Lord. He put all these insulating blankets around himself. Yes, he was going to come close to his people, but they couldn't come too close. And later on, at one point, you know, when after the ark had been captured by the Philistines and finally it came back to Israel, then some curious members of the, uh, some, some, some curious people of Israel, they came and they wanted to look inside of it. That they couldn't do that. They were struck dead on the spot. You cannot come that close to God and His holiness. You have to respect the buffers and the insulating layers He puts around them. And if you do not respect that, you're going to be consumed. Later on, too, when David brought the ark, to Jerusalem, and he was on the cart, shouldn't have been, and then began to totter and top, almost ready to topple, and then Uzzah tried to stop it. He was struck down in the spot. The Lord is the holy God. We should never forget that, even though we may be his children. So he, he insulates himself for the, our safety. Later on, we mentioned 
the tabernacle was being built, and then the priests had the role of being mediators, and the high priest could only go once a year, and he could only go with the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the people. Later on, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled that role perfectly. He just didn't go into the earthly sanctuary. He went into the heavens itself. But see, we see there how significant it is that if we want to approach the holy God, we have to go through the ways, the safe ways that he has laid out for us. If we don't do that, here as New Testament believers, if we do not go through Jesus Christ, then we will not see God as a God with whom we commune, but a God who will consume us. Only in Christ is it safe. Can we draw near? With certainty we will be received. Now at this point we can think once more of Hebrews 12. We mentioned that before. Mentioned how without holiness we cannot see God. The author underlines the call to holiness to a consecrated life by mentioning Israel meeting God at Mount Sinai, the very thing we're talking about now. And then bringing out the greater seriousness, even for us as New Testament believers, he writes, But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he brings out as well that it is more serious for the New Testament believers to disobey God's voice. For to meet God, he calls for our commitment, our consecration. And then before giving the final exhortations about how we should live a consecrated life in Hebrews 13, he writes at the end of chapter 12, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Notice that warning. There he is, a consuming fire. You don't want to be burned, but you want to commune with him, then come to him in his way, through his son. Walk in his way of his son. There's a thin line, you could say, between God consuming those who draw near and God communing with those who draw near. And so what we see as we come to the end of the chapter and the Lord is about to give the ten words of the covenant is that this marvelous moment of communion between God and his people did require commitment on the part of his people and consecration of the people. In our New Testament terms we would say that one cannot expect to be welcomed into the presence of God without faith and the accompanying life of holiness, without commitment and consecration. That's true already now. Not only now with a view to the last day, it's also a tremendous blessing that we may commune with our God in our weekly worship. That weekly worship, in a way, connects us to that moment at Mount Sinai. Almost in a way, almost see it as a reenactment of that meeting with God as we are together as his people. But it also anticipates how we will meet with him at the last day. And that is therefore impressed upon our hearts, brothers and sisters, that our God is a consuming God. But it is good news that we may have communion with him. But to enjoy such communion, he does call us to commit ourselves to his covenant and consecrate our lives. Amen.
of prayer this morning. We'll also remember the grief and the sadness and the Neeson family with the sudden passing away of the mother of Sister Nancy No Joe Neeson this past week. Let us call upon the Lord in prayer. Heavenly God and Father, we approach your throne of grace, and indeed we continue to marvel that this is possible, that we can come near to you, and we may live in fellowship with you, we may commune with you. We marvel that you have come to us as a sinful people, you have established a covenant relationship, you have bound yourself to us, you, as you carried Israel on eagle's wings out of Egypt, we know that you have carried us out of bondage to Satan and to sin. And now we also hear your call to commit ourselves, to keep in covenant, to live in faith, to consecrate our lives. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will work on us, that we may indeed hear, we may also respond to that call and see the beauty of being in fellowship with you, but also that you place the obligation upon us to live in faith before you and to walk in your ways. That we understand also that The covenant has many rich promises, but you also lay obligations upon us as your children. Work on us by your spirit that we walk in such a way that we show we are your children. We may also experience that sweet fellowship with you in your son, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship also of the Holy Spirit. Father, we also remember in our prayer and our various needs as your people continue to watch over the our older brothers and sisters who have to deal with all the ailments that come with aging and the challenges, encourage and strengthen them. We also, with those who are grieving, we think of the Neeson family, as also there has been the sudden passing away of the mother of our sister, Nancy Jo Neeson. We pray, Father, that you will encourage the family, that even though it is so sudden, so abrupt, it may also be realized that there is comfort, comfort at all times that while we may leave this life all of a sudden. Those who belong to Jesus Christ come to a point where they may enjoy greater fellowship with their Lord and Savior. And Father, may that hope of the gospel, that indeed in life and death we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that nothing really can separate us from his love, may that also encourage the family in this time of grieving as they come to terms also with that sudden loss, that sudden death in the family. Father, continue to watch over us also in our family lives. We pray that you will bless the relationship of husbands and wives, that there may be good harmony, and also where there are tensions and difficulties, will you, by your Holy Spirit, grant the grace needed to overcome that and to be restored, that there may be good harmony, proper love. May also in that respect reflect the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Give husbands what they need to be Christ-like in their leadership in the family, and give wives what they need to be church-like in the way that they also respect their husbands and look after their families, that there may be good harmony in every way. And bless also the relationship between parents and children, where there can be tensions and difficulties at times. We pray, Father, that you will work in the hearts of all, that parents may receive wisdom to deal also with all the situations at hand in a fair way, in a good way, and children also may have that willingness to listen to their father and mother, realizing that you have given them to them. We pray, Father, that you will so bless our family life, also continue to bless the life of the church family, bless the relationship between brothers and sisters. Also, we know that there may come tensions, at times hard feelings, conflicts, 
And we pray that you will grant the grace needed to work through those conflicts, that there may also be good harmony within the congregation, give the brother office bearers what they need, be with Reverend Chase as he goes about his task, give him wisdom and insight and bless the preaching and teaching that takes place, that he may build up the congregation, give the elders wisdom, also the patience and the love they need with all the members of the flock, and that they may give good leadership and direction, and guide also the deacons, that they may be able to stir up the love among the members for one another. May they together, as office bearers and congregation, work well together, so that also in this congregation all things are done in such a way that your name receives all the honor and glory. May indeed the congregation be a light on the hill. Pray, Father, that you will now also keep us throughout this day and good time of fellowship and refreshment also between the worship services and bring us back this afternoon in health and strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You received the opportunity to give your offering at this for